everyone. Welcome to ConCon. This is our 10th episode. We've been at it for a little bit here. Um, uh, at ConCon, we talk about, uh, this ConCon stands for Consciousness Conversations. We talk about all things consciousness, neuroscience, AI, everything related to the mind, uh, both human and non-human. Uh, you can find us at ConCon.show um, and download us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, today on the show, we have a very exciting guest. Uh, this is Ruth Vasilis. Uh, Ruth is a corporate lawyer turned consciousness researcher. Uh, ben and I actually met her at um, the Science of Consciousness conference this year in um, Italy, which was really fun. Um, so following her law degree from the University of Pennsylvania and several years of corporate practice, she began a sociology PhD at the University of York in England. Um, her research explores how people socially navigate the aftermath of intense altered states of consciousness, such as a near-death experience, psychedelic uh, occasioned mystical experiences. Um, through qualitative research, she investigates how people reflect on these events and the impact of the experiences on career decisions, which is obviously a thing for her, uh, health choices, social relationships, and spirituality over time. Ruth is also on the board of the university's Drug Science Society, and she's a graduate teacher in both the law school and sociology department, we should soon teach uh, a, a new module called Spiritual Realities. That sounds very cool. We'll have to talk about that. Uh, you can connect with Ruth um, on LinkedIn uh, and Instagram and email, and we'll put those links uh, in the description of the show and on YouTube. Um, cool. So with that, uh, Ruth, tell us a little bit more. Uh, I think my, my first question is, uh, I'm, you told us a little bit at the conference kind of about this, you know, spiritual experience that you had that sort of uh, pivoted you into this new career. Um, so maybe you can kind of catch us up on on that experience and, and how it went. Yeah, perfect. Uh, and thanks for having me, guys. And it's great to see you again. Um, so basically, by background, as I mentioned to you guys, I was an atheist, um, you know, materialist, just doing my corporate law thing. Um, and a friend of mine, asked me if I would come to this energy experience with her. Her sister had just become a facilitator. I knew nothing about any of these things. Completely agnostic. Hadn't heard of Reiki. I mean, truly knew nothing. Um, and it was called a Kundalini activation. And I go to this experience and the facilitator basically says, lie down and you don't have to do anything. Just listen to the music. And I was like, should I meditate? Should I, you know, is there something involved? No, no, just lie down. That's it. Um, and in a room of 10 people and soon I start feeling energy under my skin, some sort of tickling. And of course my mind is racing to figure out logically what is going on. Um, and then I burst out crying in a room full of strangers. Uh, and so strange things of this nature happened for the course of this hour-long session. And I came out at the end completely upside down, just looking at the trees being like, there's so much I don't know. Um, and that catapulted me into this quest of being like, what do people do? after this. Um, to, you know, I tried to envision myself back, you know, reviewing contracts uh, and thinking, how could you possibly do that when now all of a sudden there are 
approximately three trillion mysteries uh, that need to be solved very quickly <laughs> or at least uh, discovered. So – or um, – an attempt to do so anyway. Uh, so yeah, so I started getting curious about what do people do after these experiences. I ended up meeting uh, a professor in England who was very open to these ideas. He suggested I come do a degree with him and here I am. Where did you meet him? Um, so I, as I was grappling with some of these questions after that experience, um, you know, now I kind of study the integration of these experiences, but I had a few months of where you kind of need to, mm, you, you yeah. look within, then you're kind of testing your, the water socially and you're reading as much as you can kind of in secret, all of these things. But, um, I one day have this bing of, parapsychology just you know just this this idea of oh what what if i go uh online to search for who are kind of the biggest you know parapsychologists right now in england and the us see his name see that he's in york which i was as well uh email him the next day we go out for a coffee and then kind of the next day my application is in process sort of wow. um yeah and 4 weeks later i'm you know back on a campus and <laughs> Uh, life was really different. So, so it's I, almost oh, go ahead, Ben. I have, a, I have a question. So I feel like this this has happened to people that I know, and I feel like you kind of went a bit of a different way than most people I know. <laughs> most people I know, some people know, that Ben have, and I both know. So I'm kind of giggling. They have you know the Kundalini way. experience, and then they're like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to be a Kundalini teacher, right? And I feel like you kind of went the academic route, so, which I find interesting. So, so like. Why? Yeah, so it's it's interesting you say that because um, the practice has become a huge part of my life, and kind of whether I wanted to or not, I became a facilitator. That I can say more about that, um, but more so for me, my first thought was put me into the lab and put my brain in it, and in like. Uh, an fMRI or, or you know like somebody needs to be testing this like this is incredible the whole world needs to know about it um we need to know what's happening and so of course I started looking up what are Kundalini awakenings um you know how do these things work online there were things about I started learning about energy work non-local healing all of these things it basically became just you know a full exploration and a catch-up of topics of consciousness uh spirituality of which i had no framework in which to put any of these things i you know went to a baptist church when i was 12 because it was fun you know <laughs> because i liked the snacks after you know uh bible study um but yeah other than that i I didn't have much. So I suppose to answer your question, I've kind of taken both tracks almost. Um, so have been exploring these themes of the energy and the consciousness experientially. But then there's the side of me that's going, there's there's one way to handle this in the world we're in right now. And it's uh, academics, it's facts, it's looking at it from that perspective. I, I find that really cool. Uh, and I, I kind of, I think I'm, you know, I'm biased here. I have an opinion that I think that's kind of the way to go. That being said, I think, I feel like, you know, the acquaintances and friends of mine who didn't go this sort of academic path, it's, I think it's because they, 
uh, and they sort of realized or thought, you know, that whatever happened to them was inexplicable scientifically. So they immediately were like, well, there's no way uh, it's going to show up in a brain scan because it's totally like a metaphysical thing that just happened to me. It seems so spooky and so like magical that I don't understand how science could ever tackle this. And that's sort of why they go the like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to be a healer now and dive in uh, sort of in one of the two branches that you're talking about. And, yeah. and I think, I think honestly, this is a very fair response. I mean, I think that the, that, that experience is kind of fundamentally embodied and it's outside to, to me, I sort of look at it as like, you know, the academic world, the world of kind of words and knowledge and whatever uh, is the, you know, is a space that we can pull information that we're feeling, you know, but we, we have these embodied experiences that are kind of like difficult to translate into that layer. Right. And so for a lot of people, they just like give up, you know, like, and, and I think for, for me, I had, I, I forget, I mean, it just kind of goes back to my kind of religious trauma and whatever, but I sort of, you know, I, you would often hear from religious experiences, people say it's like indescribable. This is an ineffable. I couldn't like, I couldn't possibly, you know, whatever. And I'm like, that is so dumb. You know, I was a journalist. I was like, was it warm? Was it cold? Was it light? Was it dark? Was it heavy? Was it, was it, there's what you can start to move toward a way of describing this. And I think one of the things that has been, has propelled me is a very similar energy of like, I want to, I want to bring those things from this other realm into the realm of discussion. Um, there's a, uh, really good book Robert Wright by called why Buddhism is true. And, uh, he has this bit in that he's t- talks a lot about his experience with meditation and all this stuff. Right. And he, there's a point in the book where he's talking to a monk and the monk is like, you know, in thinking about this academically and trying to sort of like bring this to the people, you're actually never going to be able to be as Buddhist as you want. You know, you're not going to be able to sink all the way in because you're thinking about it. And it's like the, and he's like, I hope you know that you're making that trade off. And he's like, I do know I'm making that trade off, and that's worth it to me. You know, like it's like he, he's like he's still kind of fundamentally interested in, you know, kind of evangelizing and, and sort of helping other people understand what he's up to. And I and I, th- I think I kind of feel the same way. Yeah, that that resonates a lot. That uh, making a, a conscious decision that you're for the sake of expanding that language, uh, for you know expanding a field of study, you are holding yourself back from any certain other type of path that you might be taking. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't have it any other way. It feels like a nice at this point. It feels like a nice blend of of sort of you know my background and and. I love studying anyway uh, and all the things that I'm uncovering and then also, yeah, the spiritual side of things. Well, I want to get into um, what, you know, as someone who's studying this, if you could, I want to talk about what a spiritual experience in quotes is, right? Like what, what, what that is in terms of like a a set of emotions or, but, and, and maybe a way we can start talking about this is, you know, hearing your story, this resonates with some experiences that I've had of various kinds. I've had deeply spiritual religious experiences from my background, right? And then deeply, you know, spiritual psychedelic experiences and therapy experiences, right? Um, What, what, and the way I often think about it is kind of like, I have a new lens now. And now when I go back and reflect on all of my experiences and all the things I'm, I'm looking at, 
they all just look different. And so I'd, you know, the way I'd been processing the world through a certain lens. And so things had become mundane and, 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 you know, I wasn't paying attention to it. And all of a sudden I feel like I have to pay attention to everything in a different way because I have this. And so I'm it, does that resonate with you? And like, what did that lens feel like that you kind of developed after this Kundalini experience? Yeah, I, so I really like the question also because it, I am specifically studying as my, as part of my PhD, spiritually transformative experiences. So I think that, to your point, we're constantly having spiritual experiences, sort of, if you frame it that way, and once kind of the the door has been opened, so to speak, you know, if you consider synchronicities, for example, to be spiritual experiences, um, if you have a, a precognitive dream, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. But I'm looking at, as you say, those experiences that really kind of blow the lid off of your current existence such that your frame and your understanding of reality has really shifted. Um, so, I mean, for me, for <laughs> for context, this might not make me sound like the most credible researcher, but when I first came out of my experience, I, you know, went out, uh, I was with my brother at the time, and I just remember sitting there in my chair being like, it's all possible. Everything, time travel, uh, you know, <laughs> Sabrina the Teenage Witch, all of it. It's all, you know, and I and I really had that moment of, okay, hold on. If I walked into that room thinking that what happened to me was not possible, who am I to say right now without having experienced it, without having tested it, tried it, what's possible and what isn't? So it it caused me to redefine so many things in my life uh over those over those coming months after the experience yeah and and what what do you th like qualitative so i i resonate with that like all things are possible right Some, sometimes i think about it being like you know in talking to people about a psychedelic experience or something right it's like you know imagine when you're a child and you're a baby and you're born you are in this insane world of like colors and shapes and you're fumbling around and pretty soon you kind of like it becomes predictable even though it's crazy you sort of figure your way through it right and you sort of get to understand the ergonomics of this environment and then it's no longer as magical and crazy right um i'm i'm curious what was the and maybe that wasn't maybe it took a time to solidify but what what felt most possible or something what what sort of what was the newness or maybe what was the oldness that you were like kind of like holding on to that suddenly you had to let go of Ooh, does that make sense yeah it does make sense um as in i i suppose you mean more of the the paradigm views yeah um, yeah yeah well, like there like what suddenly seemed possible or did it was it was it empowering was it disempowering did it make you feel small did it make you feel bigger like what what was the what was kind of the the net um result of that it it made me feel uh i mean i think that newness that you talk about that like being a child in the world again uh but now when you're much older and, you know, maybe more self-conscious, uh, which is kind of, I think, that that difficult balancing act. Um, I think that everything suddenly did feel possible. I, very shortly after, I came across the book um, 
Many Lives, Many Masters. I always forget which direction it is. Many Masters, Many Lives. I think Many Lives, Many Masters. But anyway, um, it is a book about by Brian Weiss on past life regressions. And um, somebody had recommended it to me two years prior and I hadn't ever looked it up. Then it came into uh, my my path basically. And you know, I opened it up at 11 p.m. was like, oh, I wonder what it's, oh my goodness. And I stayed up for hours finishing it and it felt possible. And, and then, um, it was only about two weeks later that I ended up reaching out to my supervisor, uh, and starting this, this, um, line of study, partly because Brian Weiss, who I think he's, you know, got a Yale background in psychiatry, you know, he really opens this book talking, establishing himself as a credible source, basically, saying, you know, I had all these years of just plain old, you know, materialist work, and then all of a sudden, this fell into my lap. Um, so that really felt possible. I guess in the in terms of what I was still grasping onto, um, I still considered many times going back to law. Uh, and I considered for a long time keeping all of these things a secret, not sharing with certain people, hiding those those parts of myself because I guess one of the things I was holding on to was this belief that the world is not ready for, for this, um, which in some cases still true, but I think by and large what I found when I started researching was – I am I am late to the show. I'm not early to the <laughs> to this production, um, which was both comforting and overwhelming because I was like, "Boy, do I have a lot to catch up on." So I have, I have a question. Like, would you characterize? So we've kind of talked about like I guess three different uh, profound experiences that can change your life. We've talked about psychedelic experiences, religious experiences, and I guess the experience you had. Is that a third kind of uh, profound experience, like a, a healing uh, or, you know, kundalini experience? Or are these kind of all the, the same thing? Or do they just lead to similar, like, uh, outcomes, right, where people sort of just change their life or see the world in a different way? And I I think they all fall under the same umbrella. Um, so I use the term spiritually transformative experience, which I had gotten from certain research. It wasn't an easy choice on what term to use because there's so many terms, you know, um, out of the ordinary experiences, quantum change, uh, peak experiences, which I think, you know, Maslow's, which I think fall under the category of, you know, spiritually transformative experiences. Um, I... In my own research, I I have put religious conversions to the side almost as their own thing um, because this had to do with, in in my view, with a um, an experience of a spiritual nature. So something that has to do perhaps with the these questions of mind, body, soul, uh, spirit, but not necessarily religious, um, but. Basically, I think um, it's James who characterizes, you know, the, the mystical experiences as, um, you know, seeing something of a, of a higher order or an unseen order or something of that nature. So I think um, if that answers your question, I think they're all kind of under the under the same umbrella. But then we've got different varieties. Uh, <laughs> hence the, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, hence the title. I, I am blown away at how often that book 
comes up at the conferences and stuff. People talk yeah. about it all the time. It's kind of a foundational. Um, it's in, I just read it for the first time after the conferences last year. I found it kind of challenging. I mean, it feels a little archaic, the language. I guess it's like, it's you know, it's 120 years old or something. Yeah. Um, but it also feels fresh in that, like, I don't feel people, like, talk about some of this stuff in the same way. Um, I probably ought to read it again. Um, it's pretty, it's, but I, I, I liked, I liked his, it, you know, I feel like there's this era of like modernism, you know, or like turn of the last century where people were sort of even more free thinking in some ways than they are now. Like it was just like, oh, let's just think about everything and be really objective about stuff. Um, and then there was this kind of ratcheting back, like, whoa, maybe we, maybe we don't want to talk as openly about all this stuff, um, you know? Just to be clear, you're, you're talking about William James? Sorry. Yeah, William I get James. to ask the dumb questions in, the, in this one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it, his book's called The Variety of... Wait, what is it called? Varieties yeah, of... Yeah, The Varieties of Religious... Religious, religious experience. Experiences. Yeah, which um, Andrew Newberg and David Yaden did uh did kind of a not a remake per se but inspired by his work have wrote in i think it was in 2022 the varieties of spiritual experiences uh so maybe modernizing it and then some somebody else wrote one called the varieties of scientific experience i think there's been a bunch of riffs yeah we've got uh, anomalous varieties of anomalous experiences there there yeah yeah, Yeah. everyone i mean it's catchy man it's catchy it was, and it wasn't a book initially. It was uh, lectures that he gave, because yeah. um, it was, yeah, it, it's 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 interesting. Um, I have, okay, I have a I have a quick uh, maybe another dumb question, but like I hear, I mean, people use psychedelics uh, when they want to, like, let's say, quit smoking, and I feel like probably also someone like you who has this sort of spiritual experience, let's say doing the Kundalini uh, a- activations or whatever, like probably also that's a moment where they can like break a vice or something like that. Like, w- like why do you, I mean, in the studies that you've done, do you, do you see like, why, why is that link there? And does that ever happen with like um, religious transformations? Well, too? well, let me, let me pile on that, Ben, which is that the, entire program and i'm sure ruth you're familiar with the entire program of alcoholics anonymous basically the core basis of all addiction recovery is designed to create spiritual experiences that's its explicit goal so you might you might not notice that when you're like oh there's these like 12 steps and you're like i mean it talks about higher powers and stuff but like i watched this documentary about the founder and the reason why he quit drinking was because he had this like really powerful spiritual experience and he's like, this is, we need a program, we need a pathway to create this in people. And in fact, he became really interested in, in acid when it became popular and was like, this is doing it. This will give people the thing that they need to be able to quit. So it's not like, I mean, this is not like a, okay. you know, oh, the, sometimes this works. This is like, this is what people do to try and, yeah, to try and heal themselves. Yeah, and it could be happening, I mean depending on who you ask and in what discipline, um, a lot of different things could be happening. I think that, well, some of the research I've seen in the psychedelic space, for example, suggests that you open up new pathways such that you're allowing for an ability for a new identity to come forth, new self-information, basically, which I think is, is true across the board. I mean, I really do think of uh, these experiences often as a, a, not in the like perhaps cringe, you know, strictly uh, woo sense of rebirth, but, um, 
yeah, it's like a sometimes you're going to a ground zero and and reformulating assumptions and knowledge, both of the world and the self, uh, all at once after these experiences. That's interesting. I, I also find like it seems like a lot of times these are characterized as sort of like they happen once. Like it seems mm-hmm. like in a lot of, I mean, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say this so strongly. Maybe some people sort of just becomes their hobby to like rebirth every weekend. But I feel like you talk to a lot of people who are like, yeah, I did acid once in the eighties and blah, blah, blah. And then they learned, you know, something about themselves and like, that's it. That's the only time they did it or something like that. It makes me wonder, like, I guess when you have this rebirth experience, you probably feel satisfied in some way. But like, is there is there a temptation to like overdo it or just like keep <laughs> digging in? Yeah, I suppose. Do you want me to answer from my personal life experience or do, or from the sure. or, from or the research studies. perspective? You, uh, I guess we haven't talked about it, but you've interviewed like a lot of people as part of uh, your work, right? Yeah, yeah. So to give a little bit of the the background on what my research uh, is, what the study design is, is I created a qualitative questionnaire that took around 35 to 40 minutes to complete. And I actually based it off of Roland Griffith's uh, work because he had come out with this study. Um, if, if you guys don't know him, he's the, you know, one of the he has just recently passed away, but he was one of the lead um, researchers at Johns Hopkins um, and was really responsible for kind of the resurgence of the psychedelics research um, in the 90s, I believe. But so he had this um, a study that came out where he was comparing drug and non-drug mystical experiences and seeing how people were reporting the changes on themselves. But he did... Um, a quantitative study. So I took some of those questions and some of the questions I was finding from other places, some from my own personal experience, created this questionnaire. I had around 66 people complete it, and then they could opt in for a follow-up interview. Um, And the questionnaire was tracking, you know, the experience, the social support that they felt at the time of the experience, and then changes in different aspects of their lives over time. Um, And so now I have done 25 follow-up interviews of uh, of those participants that span somewhere between, I naively thought they'd be an hour. Uh, they are closer to, <laughs> yeah, thank you for laughing. Um, yeah, they are usually closer to two and a half to four and a half hours. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> this, this, but, sounds like it, this sounds like it could be a podcast, honestly. You just, you just pile these up, yeah. Yeah, that man, I have I have data to last me the rest of my life. <laughs> um but it's such a good point Ben about you know, is there a kind of one and done experience or do these experiences repeat? Because oftentimes I I realize of course in hindsight and even as I was creating the questionnaire that the idea of just one experience you know, siloed and no, nothing else remotely spiritual happening across the rest of my life just isn't a reality. Um, So oftentimes, you know, people would say, when I asked, like, have you had additional experiences on the questionnaire? They would say every day became a spiritual experience. Um, Other times people could clearly demarcate 
two big experiences. So a near-death experience, say, in the 80s, and then followed, you know, 20 years later with a kundalini awakening. And then we could really focus in on those, kind of leaving the other ordinary day-to-day spiritual experiences to the side. Um, but I, in my research experience now, um, more often than not, there's more than one experience for sure. But to your other question, I do think people can overseek, overdo um, that, you know, some of the things that we were talking about before about, um, you know, if people are seeking spirituality from more of a a comfort perspective, which is the perspective that a lot of, you know, materialists and some sociologists, that they take more of that perspective, um, then, yeah, people can kind of get addicted to the path, so to speak. And I'll, um, do you want to follow up with that, Ben? Or? No, well, I just think that's very interesting. Uh, my, my, my uh, I'll, I'll tip a hand, my hand on, on some thoughts that I have sort of philosophically about this, which is, um, you know, I see, I, I think I, I shared that a little bit about Yak Ponsep and his sort of ideas about core emotions. And I just think emotions in general are really interesting and spirituality is emotion. And I think that, you know, all of our emotions are designed to, reorient our behavior right and i think spirituality is kind of the crowning emotion of human experience and it has the ability to reorient us at, a, at the highest level um you know you think of like heroes journeys or like religious conversions or celibacy right like wow you're gonna really opt out of the gene pool for this 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 concept and so i think that um spiritual experiences you know, Mormons, for example, I grew up Mormon, right? They go to church every week or Catholics, you go to church every week and you're taking the Eucharist and you're sort of saying the creed. Well, maybe you, you said that once and it really blew your mind. But, and, and that would be, that would be like a reorienting spiritual experience. And then you have reaffirming spiritual experiences. So you're kind of, I think the, the power of them tends to be at those pivot points even though like say the emotional resonance of that experience might be exactly the same, you know, you might take LSD for the 10th time and you get all those same emotions, but it's not, it's not breaking your brain the way that that first one did because you're already heading in that direction, right? It's only when you are, when you're making a pivot or, or you sort of have an experience that kind of forces you to reevaluate things that it actually, um, yeah, switches your, switches your direction. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that, you know, on the one hand, we have um, these experiences that are causing us to pivot, but often, I mean, at least in the case of these um, 25 study participants, these are really completely paradigm-shifting, you know, uh, whoa, my life and sense of reality has been blown up. And that is independent of whether they had a pre-existing framework um, or not, so... For the most part, my study participants didn't come from any religious background. Um, In the case that they did, it wasn't kind of like, oh, I've believed in Jesus my whole life and, you know, then I I saw him and now it has reaffirmed that, that experience. Often it was so far from that experience where these, these individuals are having to then go back to their community and figure out how do I socially negotiate the fact that I've had an experience that goes against my previous uh, framework. 
And I spoke with a study participant I just did my last interview recently who was saying that out of respect, she had to not share this part of herself with people who had had the same belief system their entire lives. And, you know, she was kind of like, why would I even attempt to rock the boat for anyone else? Um, so, so yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting to look at. So I have a question. Like... Um, DR mentioned how some of these are kind of ineffable or sort of hard to describe at least. Maybe some people say you can't, but, you know, DR sort of pitched and said, I, th I think it's useful to try. And I'm wondering, you know, this is a consciousness podcast and the hard problem of consciousness also sort of lends way to this ineffability, right? Part of the reason why the hard problem is hard is because it doesn't seem like you can describe it with any certainly scientific language it's there's like this spooky thing that's sort of hovering inside or in your head or somewhere that you know it feels like something to experience reality and i'm wondering certainly someone's already coined this term but the hard problem of spirituality is it the same <laughs> thing is it actually the hard problem of consciousness is the hard problem of spirituality this sort of like why does it feel so spooky and indescribable I think that, yeah, I think that it's the same pretty much. Um, I mean, yeah, I, it, it's it's because people are experiencing something that, I mean, even in our discussion of it now is, it would be challenging to even um, articulate what it is that they cannot describe or that one cannot describe in the feelings, but to your point, we should always be trying. I mean, I believe that we can make little by little uh, progress towards figuring out more and more. And I indeed, I mean, in my personal belief, that's probably related to the, the evolution of consciousness and to, you know, all of our growth on an individual and a collective level. Um, but yeah, I, I know, you know, a lot of people in the, in the sociology sphere who kind of laugh at this idea of, you know, oh, they say it's ineffable and then they go on to describe it and, go by, and it's like, well, what are, what are they supposed to do yeah. though? You know, they're, a, they're, they're still a human being having an interaction and trying to be understood, uh, and to convey knowledge in which case you kind of have the, <laughs> the tools that you have and you use that until more vocabulary has been built, which, over time, I mean, if you look at any anything at all, you know, whether it has to do with mystical experiences or the psychedelic experiences, language is developing over time. Um, so we're getting better as more people are trying. We're getting better at, at conveying. So I have a kind of uh, a, a question about – so do you agree – do you feel like spirituality – is an emotion comparable with happiness, with like love of a partner, with, you know, like I, I shared that a bit about from Yak Ponsep about his sort of core emotional drivers. And I thought that was interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't, I didn't have that dialed up. I just asked ChatGPT like to tell me how Yak Ponsep would think about spirituality, right? And it's like, oh, it could be tied into all these. Yak Ponsep, for those who don't know, he um, wrote this great book called The Archaeology of the Mind. And he talks about these, um, 
uh, emotional subsystems that we have. So there's like a care system and a seeking system and a grief system and a panic system and how they're, how they're kind of related um, and talked about spirituality as being part of, of each of those things. Um, does that resonate with you? Does spirituality feel like a thing that comes from inside your body or does this feel like something that is like outside of us? Is it between people? Is it like, you know, what, what is, what, where does that thing, whatever it is, live? Ooh, where does spirituality live? Um, I have a few ways I could answer the question because I think that, you know, let's pretend we're not talking about anything esoteric here, right? We're just a couple of psychologists and sociologists or whatever um, talking about religion, spirituality. Um, There's so many aspects of it that are amazing for and indeed imperative for one's well-being you know the sense of um if we just look at being part of a spiritual community so the the um camaraderie um if we're thinking about you know having faith believing in something that's bigger than us uh you know feelings of sacrificing of life having meaning all of those things i think are true and are wonderful things about a spiritual path um and then on on another side, when you've had an experience, um, so it's not just any of those very, you know, 3D material things. When you've had an experience and perceived something more, um, so very much like in Aldous Huxley, whoa, okay, I have perceived something, uh, something that's more. I think that also gives a drive uh, and a and understanding and that can rock the boat. (laughs) Um, So that can be challenging. But I think that when one gets to a point where they both have that experience and don't resist it, so they're, you know, willing and able to integrate it into an everyday life, um, I think there's an even deeper type of well-being that comes from that. And that could be related to our consciousness and maybe if consciousness has an agenda, for example, or, or, um, yeah, or, or getting towards that evolution that we were talking about an evolution of consciousness, maybe there's something satisfying there in the perceived new perceived order or truth. Um, I'm not sure, but, but yeah, so I, I, I don't discredit any of those perspectives on spirituality and its benefits, but I also think that it's something more and something more that um, someone like William James starts getting to and and some of the more contemporary thinkers who have followed in his path. Do, do you think these spiritually transformative experiences are always accompanied by like satisfaction and gratitude? Is it possible to have one where the people like are filled with regret later on? <laughs> Definitely. And it's such a a good question. And it's one of the reasons that I actually chose to do this particular qualitative study, because I started seeing things about uh, spiritual emergencies, spiritual crises, um, and, you know, which is basically characterized also by something called the dark night of the soul, which is when people have these spiritually transformative experiences, have no um, framework within which to put it and may just be experiencing um, 
socially disturbing circumstances, um, physiologically disturbing circumstances, because, for example, kundalini awakenings are characterized by pretty much a blast through the nervous system. So people can feel really ungrounded um, and not know how to incorporate this into their lives. So man, these experiences really can, I, I mean, we're, human beings don't love change. You know, I think that I and my supervisors at the University of York have criticized me for this as well, because I'm looking at long-term growth, you know, I'm not like, you know, forget the couple of years where you may suffer and, you know, question the meaning of everything. How do you feel at the end? <laughs> um, but yeah, it uh, it can be filled with a lot of those feelings. And I had a few study participants who Actually, I was the first person who they were ever sharing this with. And man, they're suffering over the past 20 years while they haven't told anyone or shared with anyone and wow. were scared that whole time about what the implications were for their own sanity, for you know the state of the world. Do spirits exist or not exist? Are they following me? Are they demonic? I'm not searching for any information because I'm too scared. Um, yeah, that's that was challenging. Uh, but I think this comes to one of my early findings that when we share, have someone with whom we can share and explore this new reality, um, it helps to quiet some of those, uh, some of those challenges. And I could even see in the interview that even her working through some of these, these feelings, uh, enabled her to, to relax a little bit. Uh, I'm curious, this this is really um, piquing my interest about the co a connection here between um, spirituality and what, you know, for me and I would say for a lot of people has been another really powerful reorienting awakening moment, which is sort of sexuality and sexual energy of like, and I, I'm just remembering, you know, uh, the first time when I was like, you know, a fairly young kid and we were, I was watching this movie by myself um, not an explicit movie at all. And this scene came into the movie and um, th there was something magical and mystical about it. And I was just like transfixed as a kid. I don't know if you've seen this. There's a gif um, that's incredible of a little kid watching a belly dancer. Have you guys seen this? Mm -mm. He's probably like seven or six. And he's got, he's just like chubby kid. He's got his hands in his pockets and he's like standing out in front of a group of adults. It's like, you know, some kind of like family party. And there's this woman doing belly dancing and his eyes are just huge. And he kind of like stumbles back for a second. And then, you know, the caption will be something like, this is the day I stopped playing with Legos or like, you know, I got, <laughs> and, and I think that, that those, and, but, you know, you think about being, realizing that you're a homosexual or that you have, you know, the, I, I think those as well can be. Like you're talking about secretive, but like transformative and you're like identity changing, direction changing. Um, I'm curious how you, if those feel adjacent at all to you or if they feel like super different. Um. Very much so. Uh, I think that the only thing lacking is this, you know, perceiving a new order to reality, but otherwise, having since I've started this research, I mean, particularly for the experience of being LGBTQ, um, the coming out process for one of these spiritually transformative relationships for somebody who doesn't mm -hmm. have the community, and then the coming out process. Otherwise, I mean, I I don't mean to say that 
identical in any way. Each has its unique challenges. Uh, but there are a lot of similarities. And when I've talked to my LGBT friends about you know, what I'm researching, so many have said to me and been like, this just sounds like the coming out process. Um, And, you know, the more I think about the changes that ensue from from these types of experiences, I mean, I think it was on on a Sam Harris podcast where he was speaking with someone who was talking about, for example, when you're going to have a child, that no one can actually convey to you what – having a child is going to be like and how your entire world changes. Um, So she likened that to the type of of just complete reality transformation uh, that that is inexplicable otherwise beforehand or incomprehensible anyway. Um, So yeah, I, I actually do find when I look at the lived experience of the people who are, are going through this, that actually it's, I think it's just another human challenge uh, and uh, another confrontation of, of change in our lives, albeit of a slightly different um, variety. Birth of a child. Yeah. That's a really excellent um, example. Uh, I, I have not had kids of my own, but I, my oldest niece, um, when she was born, um, I remember going to visit and she'd been in the hospital and she was kind of sick and I picked her up and it, it was this, I just felt this like blood, this outpouring of, of deep emotion. And it's like never gone away. She's, um, 16, you know, and I, in, uh, you know, she's a teenager now. She like, you know, uncle Davy is not cool anymore. Like I'm, you know, <laughs> well, that, uh, you're like, every time I try to carry her now, I'm still, yeah, yeah, she's, still she's flooded with it. compassion. But, 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 it, but that, that I can still remember that emotion deeply. You know, that was that I, I would, I hadn't really thought about it in that light, but it's probably one of the most transformative spiritual spiritual experiences I've I've had was the, was that moment. Well, don't you remember, dear? Actually, I'm I'm curious, Ruth, if you attended this talk, but at the Science of Consciousness conference, there was um, I think it was a plenary talk on, I think it was called Birthing Consciousness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. I remember it was one of the favorite yeah. talks uh, that we went to because it's just something I don't think about, but it is it is a very unique thing that half of you know humans basically go through and it's a very unique altered state and well and what i thought was interesting is it wasn't just about the altered state of birth giving that like you you go like that that the thing that i'm kind of describing it was sort of also the um your body actually is prepping you for it all these things are changing in sort of your brain composition and whatever as you're as you're preparing for that thing to happen which is pretty nuts and my understanding is that Birth in and of itself, giving birth in and of itself is transformative. But then, actually, there seems to be a, a subset of a subset of um, women who give birth who are actually having some of these transformative experiences of the kind I'm studying in my yeah. um, in my dissert for my dissertation. Uh, so, actually, having out of body experiences or you know energetic awakenings or or things of that nature. You know, I've I've never made this connection before, but uh, it is it is interesting to me. You know, raising a human baby is the hardest job of any animal in um, all of nature, right? Like they're they're useless for like years, and then like actually to get to reproductive state, it's like fourteen, fifteen years, right? So in in a way, you probably need that maternal instinct and care and all the stuff we're talking about to be 
exponentially hard. It needs to match the level of difficulty that you're going to have to go through as a mother, right? So I almost wonder if that was one, those kinds of dynamics are the things that can set the stage for, you know, other types of spirituality, consciousness, whatever we have, we have the, 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 the you know, we're, we're developing this deeper well of, uh, of care and affection. Um, I don't know, pretty deep speculation there, but just an yeah. interesting thought. So I'm wondering, like, would it be fair to say someone before they've had the, this transformative experience, they're spiritually unconscious? Like, can we talk mm. about the before? Like, is that a unique state where you're part of your, you know, conscious self is just closed off or shut down or, you know, asleep? It's a really good question because I think sometimes about people who have faith or or believe in a higher order but haven't experienced it uh, in the way that, you know, these these my study participants have and – yeah, I mean, it seems like there's an unlocking of another layer of consciousness. Um, so, you know, in some cases, these are full kind of, quote unquote, enlightenments. In other cases, it's a glimpse. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know how I would would characterize it because I'm also, I'm, without having thought about it more, I'm hesitant to say, oh, well, someone who's been going to church for, you know, 50 years but hasn't had one of these experiences, well, they, unfortunately, you're not part of the club. So um, I would have to think about it more and how, how we would even define it. Hmm. It's a very good question. Um. Have you, by chance, Ruth, inter- interviewed any Mormons or ex-Mormons? I'm just curious. No ex-Mormons. No. Um, so <clears throat> I've never I've never encountered this in any other uh, religious tradition. You know, not that I'm like super deep in all of them, but Mormons actually have a very specific physiological thing that they describe as the essence of a spiritual experience. And that this is a thing. And, and peop- some church leaders have tried to sort of like... Um, dial dial back the rhetoric on this but it's like in mormon scripture and the term they use is a burning in your bosom which i think is hilarious uh on its face as a term but like that you're supposed to feel this like fire inside of you which i as a mormon i definitely felt i've definitely felt that on during psychedelic experiences and other contexts as well but you know this is i i thought it was it, it to me it's a very interesting thing that they um, the Mormons are very much about people having individual personal experiences. They're less mm-hmm. interested. Well, I mean, they're, they're interested in kind of conformity and creating this culture and whatever, but there's this big, uh, emphasis on like, Hey, you should read the book of Mormon. You should pray about it and ask God if it's true. And when you do that, you should feel this very specific thing. It's kind of like a very specific formula that's designed to try and help, uh, generate these, um, these types of spiritual experiences. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm curious if you've seen that from other people where they were like trying to follow a certain path and and were able to make it happen, or was it like did it was it more like you where it kind of like is most of the time does it feel like it kind of caught him off guard um, and 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 knocked him back? Well, so two things. Um, the first is that I actually think what you were saying about um, the having those physiological experiences as part of your religion. I actually think that's common to many religions and in fact Mm. might be one of the limitations of the study in terms of somebody who would identify as religious probably would have some of these experiences and would be like, there's nothing transformative about this. This was an average Sunday, you know? So if it's put in that framework, then perhaps 
they wouldn't be participating in this kind of study anyway. Um, and then remind me what the what the question was at its root because I had a, a point to make. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm forgetting what my question was. Well, ben, me, over me, to you in the studio. <laughs> I had a thought when you asked the question, so maybe I can kill the yeah, go for it. Here. So, you know, you're saying like this sort of recipe that you should feel the burning mm, in your bosom. Yeah. You know, we, we've been talking about the interplay between language and experience, spiritual experience. Sometimes language can be kind of limiting. It can limit your experience. Like, if you're expecting a burning in your bosom and that's what you're looking for, maybe that's what you'll feel, but maybe you won't feel other things potentially. And is this, mm. so is this recipe serving you? Is this something that like helps people have spiritually transformative experiences or is it, you know, fundamentally limiting? Yep. Great question. And reminded me of what <laughs> DR's original mind, yeah. question was. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, I, so given what I have heard from my study participants and what I've read in these questionnaire responses, I don't think it's limiting, uh, perhaps in, in certain containers. But when it comes to a full-blown spiritually transformative experience coming on, it doesn't seem to be the case because I do have a number of participants who I asked this question in the questionnaire, were you seeking it? Was it spontaneous? Or is it a combination of both? Please explain. And you know, some people will say one or the other, but a lot of people say a combination. And most mm. people say, you know, I had practiced yoga for 20 years, or I had been on meditation retreats, or whatever the case was. And then there's always the, but I didn't expect something like this. Uh, but I could not possibly have imagined this. Um, which kind of in a different vein, but bringing my legal background in a little bit, is one of the criticisms of um, psychedelics and whether we can actually get informed consent for them. Because mm. can we you don't really... You getting, getting into. <laughs> exactly. Like if, if you, okay, maybe I can tell you you're going to have these hallucinations, etc. But, you know, clause 8.2. Six says uh, you may have a mystical experience. Can we really describe what the implications of that could be for someone's life? I mean, can, how many subsets of that point do we need? Subpoints where we say, um, and you may feel ostracized from your entire community, and you may feel nobody understands you, and I, you know, it may take you twelve years to figure out what you're doing on this planet. You know, so um, yeah, there's a there's a big question mark there. Yeah, I, you know, spoke to a friend. Uh, well, I, I have a, I have a friend who have had many conversations about this with, and they had, I guess, their first acid trip. Maybe it was one of the, one of a very few um, psychedelic experiences they had, and it was reorient, you know, reorienting in a very uncomfortable way for them for years. In kind of like a. I don't trust myself or reality or whatever for mm. a while, you know? Um, yeah. And so it's like, I don't, and, and, you know, everyone around her is doing the same thing and having a much light, more lighthearted experience, you know, and she's having this like dark night of the soul uh, and, you know, around people who don't really understand what she's going through. Yeah. It can be, it can be, uh, can definitely be pretty intense. Yeah, and I'm I'm trying to figure out in these interviews, and I've got quite a bit of data now, of where can we look? At, and I think my suspicion is that the answer comes from one's social life. But 
where are the cases that are socially smooth afterwards and where are the cases where people are having dark nights? And when people look back on them, why? Why was it so challenging? Um, And, you know, some of my study participants, it's been an interesting process doing my first qualitative interview study in this way because I'm watching some of my study participants come to realizations during the interview, um, at which point I'm like, oh, you have not thought about this before. Uh, But, you know, coming to the realization of, oh, my God, I was so lonely. Um, and, and realizing, oh, it was so tough. I had no one to share it with. Um, and so I really think that there are, there are a lot of, a lot of clues in there for what makes for, you know, uh, a dark and challenging journey. And then what makes for, you know, something a little bit bumpy, life is bumpy, but, uh, a, a more or less smooth adjustment so to. In these experiences, um, like, how often is there like in a presence of like an other or like an entity and how often is it just sort of pure feeling or purely like an inward sensation? You mean other, like a, like an external like a, visitor. A or or sort of, like, I've been thinking or, about like, yeah. the, you know, the DMT experiences I've read about yeah. where people are often like visited by angels and things like that, but you can certainly have a transformative spiritual experience where no other external factor is, is sort of, feeling like it's uh, delivering you a message or anything like that. Yeah, I can't tell you a figure, so how how many, uh, but I can tell you that exactly as you said, that there are a lot of experiences where people are not, you know, seeing somebody like a, a DMT entity uh, or or something of the like, or an angel coming into the room or whatever it is, although those occur too, you know, whether it's when once, you know, somebody has um, a loved one who's passed away and they see that orb of light in the room. That's a common, um, common example of this, this type of experience. Um, but, a, you know, a kundalini awakening I'm thinking of, for example, where you're not necessarily seeing any type of entity, but you're feeling an eruption of energy in the body. Um, sometimes you get that feeling of unity or the, you know, noetic downloads where you feel, you know, everything, everywhere, all at once, um, which I think then people attribute to something higher uh, of a, yeah. Okay. I have a follow-up question that probably makes no sense, but I'm just going to wing it. Here we go. So DR and I, I know are pretty sympathetic to theories of consciousness where at least in terms of the development of it, the explanation is that we developed this theory of mind. There's a pretty clear evolutionary reason why you'd want to know, like the, you know, this organism out there in the world, are they going to attack you? Are they going to try to mate with you or whatever? And if you direct theory of mind inward, you kind of maybe that's how consciousness gets bootstrapped, right? Mm. It's sort of a social intelligence that you're developing for clear evolutionary benefit that you develop inward. And now you have a story about yourself. Um, I'm wondering, with respect to sort of that kind of paradigm, if a similar argument could be made for spiritual consciousness, where maybe it's not. Uh, you know, intelligence directed towards you and trying to understand your behavior or reflecting it back to me, but it's sort of reflecting it out more broadly. Like, why is the world, uh, you know, a theory of mine applied to sort of the world at large? And like, why are these external forces like affecting my life? 
Like, I'm just wondering if there's a... This question makes no sense, but I'm wondering if there's a way that we can talk about spiritual consciousness in the same way we talk about, like, social consciousness or self-consciousness. I feel like I'm almost there to getting the the crux of your question, but I'm not... Let, let me see. I, I was actually almost going to ask a very sim- very adjacent question. Let me see if this is, like, an easier one to sort of bite on, which is, what is the evolutionary value of spirit like how does this help us survive as animals right so like ben's saying and i you know this is slightly provocative statement although not to the people that i think i pay the most attention to which is that oh you know consciousness is a total fluke and an accident and unnecessary and we just like happen to get it and like what a magical mystery and it's like I do not buy this argument at all, right? Like, this is the one of the most salient features of us, the most successful species on the planet. Like, how is this not core to our survival, right? And I think similarly, um, like, spirituality is, again, I think probably one of our most crowning emotional conscious states. How is that not also core to our survival? So I guess, yeah, that, that was the question I was going to ask. Is that, does that kind of tie, tie in with what you were kind of saying, Ben? Yeah, I was kind of like sort of, a, is there an evolutionary like development or process that we can ascribe spiritual consciousness to? I mean, I, so I think definitely partly for DR, what you were saying just about spirituality in general, having, having benefits for, um, human evolution. I think our ability to be aware of ourselves and constantly questioning our environment, our internal self, the human species. I think, you know, a lot of these things are the reason why we are such a dominant species on, on the planet. Um, I guess I have some personal views on the yeah the, speculate away let's hear it <laughs> well on the on we're the, all about speculations on this podcast so on the on the evolution of consciousness um i i think that it all comes together sort of with looking at also biofield um energy healing and kind of looking at where where does all of that information come from is there a field and are we slowly but surely getting to a point where certain layers of perception are coming off um such that we can see another another level of consciousness and then embody that for the survival of humans so that's a little probably sci-fi we've jumped from <laughs> from very um like grounded pragmatic ideas uh to to something a bit more esoteric but wait can um, you can you can you can you take one more crack at that can you describe that one more time definitely so okay one of the things that are that is coming to mind something we can actually uh root in science for example is how so i'm thinking about for example quantum entanglement right so we know that when when um two atoms have been connected at some point if they are in separate places that they are still somehow energetically linked um and i think the more that we look into things like biofield healing which is of course even how i I got here, um, that we're going to see that we're all connected on a layer deeper than just this, this physical 
uh, 3D layer. And I think that that is going to bring that realization. And as we are opening up our perceptions to that, so through these spiritual experiences, um, as we are able to perceive those things, I think that is going to bring its own host of evolutionary advantages uh, for all of us. Does that make sense? Was that a bit more concrete in its flow? You're saying saying that we're learning how to tap into something which is maybe even, you know, pre-biological or whatever um, that is to our advantage, right? Uh, Although I would say that, you know, that's sort of horse before the cart in a sense where – you know, that goal needed to exist before we had the spirituality. Like, if, if that's the thing that we're just now getting to, then the spirituality had to, would have had to exist for some other reason that is now allowing us to, to do that, right? I'm not sure. Yeah, Sorry, I... but... You, so, Ben, you're saying, like, why, why, you know, like, if... What is the evolutionary value of spirituality? Well, the value can't be a, the end goal, right? Like, uh, dinosaurs didn't have feathers so that they could fly, Right, they had to have had them for some other reason, and then eventually they became useful to fly, uh, because you need that sort of incremental growth, right? So, so spirituality needed to sort of exist for some reason, so that it, along the way, even if now we're using it for something deeper and more profound. Ben, is that what? Well, your would, would that be like? Uh, let me see if I can analogize that with something similar. Would it be like you know we developed the tools of reason and logic? And uh, using those tools, develop the scientific method, which we learn truths about the world from. Is that a kind of a similar thing? Like the sort of the reason and logic probably came for not for reasons of understanding the universe, uh, but like very basic evolutionary reasons. But now we're like sort of using those tools, repurposing them for discovering truths about the universe. Yeah, I think I think that. That sounds right. And then I think, well, I think we're talking about maybe two different things here because when we talk about just strictly spirituality, I'm not sure if under that, it it would depend how we're defining spirituality. If it's just uh, faith, for example, um, then I think there are a whole host of reasons that that developed that don't necessarily have to do with consciousness. Although you could argue that um, consciousness wants us to be socially connecting, you know, that that's one of our, our main drivers, in which case, of course, interrelated with, with consciousness. But um, so I, I put that to, to one side of for a lot of the reasons we were talking about earlier, you know, spirituality is good for community, for well-being, for survival, for explaining the unexplainable, all of those things I'm very sympathetic to. Uh, and then I think that just in terms of deepening our consciousness, um, that that's almost its its own trajectory, and then the two kind of meet at at some point, which is part of what I'm seeing in the lives of these study participants. Yeah, I think that I mean I think the social cohesion aspect of spirituality is huge, and it's easy sometimes in these contexts where you go to in, to even just consciousness as, as a concept, thinking about it as a single player game to me sometimes doesn't make that much sense where it's sort of like, these are tools for alignment and, you know, probably a case to be made if we're the most successful species, the second most, or maybe we're second most would be, you know, the whole hymenoptera class of like bees and ants and the social insects that sort of operate in a very similar way where, you know, they have, 
you know, there, there, there is a sense of altruism or whatever in the way that they, in the way that they operate and like, you know, all of the flowering plant, like, you know, the reason we have flowers and we have trees and all these things is because of bees, right? Uh, it's kind of their world in some, in some senses as well, um, because they've learned how to collaborate and be not just like individuals. And I think, I don't know, I think it's possible that some of these emotions are a way of stitching us together as communities. You know, it's how you get celibate priests. That's how you get, you know, people that go die in war. Like, um, I've heard, you know, studies from apes, um, where, you know, not you from might... apes about apes, <laughs> right? About apes. Thank you. Yes. I mean, well, primates. Yeah. Although that'd be also way cool. Yeah. And uh, on another <laughs> podcast episode, would love to hear about it. <laughs> Where you know you can, you know, it might look like they're working in in um, in concert, but you could actually see that the 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 effort that's been put in by every individual is actually just purely self interested. Um, versus like, you know, in, in, in human endeavors where you can see, um, behavior that it's, that is more kind of like purely altruistic. Um, cool. Any, did you want to go any deeper on that question, Ben, or any comments on what I was saying, Ruth? No, I mean, I can't stress enough that I think that, you know, the interesting thing that came up in my mind, actually, when you were talking about the monkeys being self-interested is can anything ever be purely self-interested? And I, you know, I I just think that we are so inextricably intertwined in so many ways um, that go beyond our, our conscious awareness that, um, yeah, I, I have to mull over that. Um, because I think if any species is going to survive, that it is in some ways thinking about its, its tribe and survival and... Um, yeah, so pure self-interest and, and and loneliness actually is not an, an evolutionary advantage in any way, just even for the, like, physical species, let alone uh, in consciousness. So, yeah, something to mull over. Well, one of the – I should have dis- – one of my disclosures at the beginning. So Ben is, you know, comes from the AI hard science kind of side. Uh, I was an econ undergrad and so that sort of like economics, uh, you know, self-interest model always is a big, mm. is a big part of how I, how I view the world so that then you're probably getting, probably getting a peek into that. Um, cool. Uh, well, I think we're getting close to, to wrap up if, um, uh, I have a couple small questions, Ben, do you have any, anything else you wanted to bring up or want to discuss? Um, no, well, I can't stop thinking about how actually, Ruth, you should probably start a podcast where you bring on all these uh, interesting people you've interviewed. That would be so fascinating, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to think about it. I mean, in the first instance, I will think about putting out a dissertation uh, <laughs> <laughs> where I may discuss one or two of them. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's a lot of analysis of the data ahead, which I'm just really excited for. There have been themes coming out that I just now seem to make sense, but I just hadn't anticipated like the real importance of romance uh, and the way in which people are so much more able to be themselves and integrate these experiences through romance. Themes of parenting have been coming out, uh, a lot that has to do with the the family system. Um, Interestingly, on spirituality from the questionnaire, 100% of the participants at the end are multi-faith. 
are just mm. kind of maybe they identify with something, mm. most of the time not, but if they do identify with something, it is still but open to all religions. And I thought that was pretty amazing. Wow. So there's yeah, there's a lot to a lot to uncover. So I'm looking forward to to combing through it and then um, disseminating it in whatever medium makes sense. But thanks for saying that, Ben. Yeah, it kind of, um, I used to, there are a couple of thing, podcasts I used to listen to a long time ago. NPR used to do this thing called This I Believe, and people mm-hmm. would go on, sometimes famous people, and talk about things they believed. Uh, or like StoryCorps was another thing, where it was just like people telling these, like, and I was like, oh, this would be really cool to just hear people telling their transformative, um, you know, uh, life, spiritual experiences. Um, uh, well, I have another, I have a logistical important question, which is, uh, are you going to be joining us at the science of consciousness conference in April in uh, Tucson? I am not sure. Cause I have so much going on at that time. Um, just, and it's, um, only a few days before I start teaching on spiritual realities and, uh, yeah, I was like, I was weighing the options and then I think that I may not be joining but oh, hey, you never know. But breaking convention is gonna when when is it again? It's twenty two to twenty seven is science of consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. You know who knows? You may. Life is a mystery. If I've learned it's, anything. <laughs> so I went two years ago to the Tucson spot. It's beautiful. It's up in the canyons. They got these cool cactuses. It's a much bigger crowd um, than mm-hmm. was in in Italy. Um, but uh, yeah, and and you know you could kind of. Do some podcast episodes with me and Ben while you're there or something if you want. Could so. do. You're right. You're so. right. There's also a, a cool woman you guys could check out there. Her name's um, Marjorie Woolicott. Um, she's one of the the women who helps organize it, I believe. Um, maybe I shouldn't be quoted saying that on a, on a podcast. I think so, though. But um, she studies Kundalini awakenings, transformative oh, cool. experiences. She's looked at how also how people more recently, actually, I think just last year, published something about how um, people's careers change, uh, their perspectives change within their careers and, and things of that nature. So she's got some some cool work. Um, but yeah, a lot of cool people will be there. I, I saw the list. So yeah, who knows? Maybe I will end up seeing you guys there. Otherwise you have to come see me in London. All right. Sounds good. Uh, Ben, any, anything else from you? Well, I, I just looked up the, uh, the, uh, science of consciousness call for papers and, and the, uh, speaker list is pretty cool. Tononi's going to be there. Yeah, that'll be that'll be that'll be fiery. I hope they I hope they talk about that uh, paper that people sent out this year. They're just blasting IIT. Did you see this, Ruth? No, I didn't. Someone, someone, like a bunch of people. I was like hundreds of people or something. Like sent, like signed this paper, like this uh, document that went out that was like IIT is garbage science and no one should believe it. So yeah, that'll be that'll be interesting. <laughs> Everyone gets their turn, don't they? You know, come out with the theory. People love you. People hate you. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm I'm waiting for my turn in that in that queue. It'll come. Maybe it's coming after this podcast. <laughs> yeah. you're gonna go. You're gonna go big. You're gonna go major viral after this for sure. This has uh, been uh, this has been really fun. Yeah, this yeah. has been fun, uh, and I'd love some time to also go into some of your uh, theories on consciousness and what you guys believe and. Yeah, start finding the intersection of of all of these lived experiences and the themes of consciousness. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely awesome we'll definitely uh, do a follow up episode with you, especially like once you're getting you know further along on the research and how everything's going. That'd be that'd be really fun. 
That sounds great. And thanks for having me, guys. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Ruth. Appreciate it.